continue on our Latin series on the book of Job. And this morning, um, the task is somewhat challenging because really I need to cover about 20 chapters of material. I do have, I, because our theme is Job's friends and the speeches, uh, but I, I wanted to read just a couple of, of Job's responses um, to his friends' speeches in response to him their attempts to comfort him. Uh, The first one is from chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 6, and the next one is from chapter 16, 1 through 8. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and the wisdom will die with you. (laughs) It's not starting well, right? But I have understood as well as you, I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. And the thought of the one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure. And who will bring their God in their, bring their, God in their hand? Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could straighten you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, as we enter into the story of Job and into the exchange between Job and his friends. We ask that you would instruct us and teach us, challenge us and comfort us, um, grow us in wisdom. Um, I do pray this morning that you would teach us what it means to um, to be true friends, true comforters, and that you would give us the wisdom we need to grow in our suffering and to help others as they suffer. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This past week, I was down in Illinois, Oak Park, Illinois, for, um, and I was eating lunch with a group of pastors and uh, professors, seminary professors, Bible professors, part of a fellowship that I've been a part of for the past five years called the Center for Pastor Theologians. And uh, we gather every year for, for at least two days to discuss a specific theological topic. Last, this past week was, not, was uh, humility and narcissism. (laughs) And uh, we reflect on a theological topic, we share research projects and things we're working on, and then also just life together in ministry. And someone asked me what I was preaching on, and I mentioned that I was doing a series on Job. And I, I mentioned the topic for this Sunday, which is Job's friends, or the theme is how not to be like Job's friends. (laughs) So seeing an opportunity, I, I immediately, you know, there's four people, we were all talking for people there, and I immediately thought, here's a good opportunity to do some sermon work. Um, And so I asked them, 
How ought Job's friends have responded to him? How ought they have responded? We know what they said. It's not too hard to figure out what they said that was wrong. But what could they have said that would have, instead of making Job miserable, would have brought him comfort? And uh, so I just sat back and then I just listened for about 15 minutes or so uh, to uh, four different people from very different backgrounds uh, share incredible wisdom and insight, not only into the book of Job, they all knew the book of Job quite well, but also uh, wisdom and insight because they themselves have experienced much suffering in their lives. And later on, as I was driving home, I, I was reflecting on the whole experience, and uh, when I, I kind of zoomed out, and I thought to myself, these are precisely the kinds of friends that Job wished he had had. <laughs> these are precisely the kinds of friends that Job wished he had had. Um, they were wise and helpful comforter. And um, a lot of what I have to say today is informed by that conversation uh, that I had on Wednesday. So what would it mean for us to be the kinds of friends that Job wished that he had had? <laughs> True comforters. Um, you know, again, Job called his friends miserable comforters. <laughs> That's a pretty uh, damning indictment. But um, how do we become a true comforter? Uh, what is the opposite of being a miserable comforter? You know, we think about a comforter as somebody who is sensitive, sympathetic, patient, uh, somebody who's, who's helpful. Um, but I think that most of all, what we need out of a comforter, and I've thought a lot about the, the right adjective, is a wise comforter. That's what we need to be. The opposite of miserable comforter is a wise comforter. Wise comforters are sensitive, and they're, 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 they're sympathetic, and they're helpful. Um, but more than that, what they do is they, they orient us to the mystery of God and the presence of God in our suffering. Uh, I haven't talked much about the book of Job as a book of wisdom, but the book of Job is considered part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. You have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, um, and the Psalms, and Job is included in that. And part of the purpose of a wisdom book is to help us grow in wisdom. And for Job, it's learning to grow in our wisdom as we suffer. But in particular today, growing in wisdom as we accompany those who suffer. The, the theme of this series is uh, trusting God in the dark. Um, and an important part of trusting God in the dark is having the right companions and people with you. Um, and so... Um, one of the extraordinary things about the book of Job is just how much space that the book gives to Job's friends. Um, there's eight chapters of just speeches from Job's friends, and then there's, you know, uh, responses to every single speech from Job. And um, the presence of this interaction, which really makes up the substance of the whole book, um, I think it has something really important to teach us that we, we have to pay attention here. We can't just kind of go from the first chap couple chapters and skip all the way to the end of the answer. We have to, to go through uh, these middle chapters. But what's interesting about the book of Job is that what the friends say, a lot of what they say is right, but it's off just enough to be wrong. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the challenging part, because you read it, this sounds all very, very orthodox. But Job's experience of his friend's comfort, if you will, scare quotes, is that he says, they're miserable comforters are you all. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? I mean, he's basically, you guys are 
you guys are gas bags, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a nice way to put it. And Job's not alone in his opinion about his friend's uh, so-called comfort. God himself rebukes these friends. At, at the end of the book in chapter 42, God will say to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my friend, my servant Job did. And the, the, the whole thing is this. They're trying to defend God <laughs> from Job. And God will say in the end, you have not spoken right of me. Um, now, even though Job's friends seek to honor God, they, they actually are not, they don't have God's kind of God-approved speech. So the friends in the dialogue is kind of a cautionary tale, if you will. They serve as exhibit A of what not to do, right? Here's not what you don't say. Um, but I, it's, I don't want to caricature them um, as just sort of dim-witted and insensitive. These were true friends. Um, these men really did care about Job, and they had the best of intentions. When they hear about the evil that befalls Job, it says they made an appointment, and they, they went to Job to comfort and to, to sympathize with them. These are good men um, and true friends, even though they fail. So I think that's important to keep in mind, right? Because I don't know about you. I mean, I, I fail many times. <laughs> I've failed many times, and some of you have been on the receiving end of that, of being a true comforter, a wise comforter. Um, but I, let's consider the engagement a little bit more. Uh, so Job's friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And what we learn, most likely these are elders, elders to even Job himself, um, which means that they would have been credited with, with great honor and authority and wisdom. And when they hear of Job, they come to, offer, uh, to visit him. And what we see in chapter 2 is we hear this description. So when they saw from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now these friends, they start off quite strong. <laughs> they enter into Job's mourning, and they weep with him, and they sit in silence with him. And this is exactly what they should have done, right? This is exactly what they should have done in this circumstance. Be present. Don't speak. And it's what we should do in the very similar circumstances. However, when Job opens his mouth in chapter 3, which we, we discussed last week, his poem of despair, it stirs in his friends up a response. In particular, there's one statement he says towards the end that I think that sort of triggers why, and it's the only mention really of God in the poem, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And now Job is indirectly accusing God here of hedging him in as an innocent man with suffering. Um, and Job's friends, they're like, okay, <laughs> they can't let this, this uh, theological error go unanswered. So there's two mistakes that the, fr the friends of Job make. Um, and uh, then two mistakes they make and mistakes we shouldn't make. But the first mistake is this. This is the mistake they make and being wise comforters. They seek to engage Job in his suffering intellectually, but not emotionally. They seek to engage Job's suffering intellectually, but not emotionally. Um, they fail to discern the emotional situation and to respond accordingly. 
Uh, they fail to understand that in this poem of despair, it's not so much an expression of Job's theology, but an expression of his pain. And so they begin to argue with his experience. And they, they really fail to see what I think the true challenge of suffering is, is that, and I, I've talked about this the past couple weeks, the true challenge of suffering is not intellectual. I mean, it raises all kinds of intellectual problems for us, to be sure, but the true challenge is existential. Like, it's emotional. What makes suffering hard is not that it breaks my brain, but it breaks my body. <laughs> it breaks my emotions. And I think that in the midst of suffering, not only do we, as those who are suffering, look for intellectual solutions and want to think our way through it, because, again, that's a way to control it, but we, as those who are with them, are tempted to want to explain, to give reasons, to systematize, to theologize, to offer advice, to offer solutions. Um, but really, the only way is to live through it. You have to just, you have to go through it. Um, so the friends, their first mistake is they, they respond to suffering intellectually rather than emotionally. It is very hard. It is very hard to suffer with others. It's very hard to suffer with others, even when you care very deeply for them. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, because when you suffer with another person, when you... Tr when you comfort another person in suffering, what you have to do to do it well is you have to enter into their experience. You have to be willing to feel what they feel. And when, when, when it's dark emotion, like Job expresses in chapter 3, when it's despair, it is very uncomfortable, to put it mildly. <laughs> it is, makes you feel very vulnerable and, and, and um, very unsettling. And again, I think we find ways to kind of control it or to avoid it. Um, to, to suffer with other people is a very emotional experience. And, that, and you know this when you've been with people who are suffering. There's a way that you, you feel very tired afterwards. Uh, Miriam Greenspan, um, in her book, Healing Through Dark Emotion, this is a quote from the worship folder last week, not this week. She helps us understand why this is the case. And I think it's important to understand how emotion works. She says, dark emotions that... The dark emotions that our bodies carry are transpersonal energies housed in our flesh and rooted in our responses to the world, to the inevitable pain of being alive and being humanly connected to others. We see our private feelings through the lens of our separateness, but when we widen the lens, it becomes clear that everything that we feel is experienced within a larger system of emotional ecology. Okay. Very simply put, emotions are our bodily responses to the world that can become viral. Emotions are like a virus. They can jump off of your body onto another person like a cold or COVID does, right? So another person's anger, another person's anxiety, and, and also positive emotions such as joy, but dark emotions are more, more powerful and they're more transmittable, but they can jump off us into other people and so you can be with a person in despair and you have nothing in your life to really be despairing about, but you can come away feeling despair. Again, that's the power of emotion. And again, this is why I think it's so hard for us, right? I mean, I can spend a lot of time talking about how hard it is 
to be with people. This is, this is why chaplains and people who are counselors, I mean, there's a lot of training because it's, it's not a straightforward thing just to sit with people. You'd think it would just be simple, but it's not. The wise comforter is willing to engage the suffering of others, not just intellectually, but also emotionally. The wise comforter is attuned to the emotion of a situation and is willing to listen and actively listen and um, receive, receive the emotion, however wrong it might feel, without feeling like you have to correct it or argue against it. The thing that people need most in the depths of dark emotion is not, again, rational explanations or answers or solutions. They don't need to be fixed. Because the thing that suffering does is that it isolates you. It isolates you. It makes you feel like you are absolutely alone in the world, that nobody could possibly understand what you're going through. And that experience is just overwhelming. And so the, the ministry of comfort, of being a wise comforter, is, is it's very simple. It's just our mere presence and, our, and, and, and connection, that we're emotionally connected to that person. We're emotionally connected and engaged to them. And it's sort of like a hand that sort of reach, reaches down into the darkness to just hold on to your hand to keep you from falling deeper. And just reminding a person that you're not alone. You're not alone in this. And, it, and, it, and a lot of times you feel powerless when you are with people in suffering, and that's okay, because that's how they feel. But suffering with others doesn't just challenge us emotionally. It challenges our faith. It challenges our belief in God and our, our thinking about who God is. And it, um, it challenges our theological systems. And that's clearly what's happening with Job and his friends. Um, you know, Job says some things about God that and how the cosmos works, that his friends just can't abide. He just, they think he's becoming um, heretical in his theology. He claims that he's innocent of wrongdoing and that his suffering is completely unjust and God is to blame. Um, and if this is true, Job's friends, they don't have a theology with categories for, for this. They don't, have a, they don't have the categories for understanding innocent suffering. And so they, they just, they feel like they have to challenge Job on this. You've misunderstood your suffering. And they, they start, Eliphaz is the first one who speaks, and he's quite gentle in how he raises his objection. But he says, this is chapter four, um, right after Job's poem. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the, the weak hands. And your words have held, upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways your hope? In other words, Job, you know how the moral law of the universe works, and you have been with others who have suffered and given him the same advice, which is, look to your own life. What might have you have done? How might you have sinned? Right? Because the righteous are blessed, and the wicked, they suffer. This is the principle of retribution that we talked about you don't want to admit it, but people get what they deserved, and in some way, maybe you don't realize or don't see it, Job, but you probably sinned, you, you've sinned somewhere, and you need to deal with that. But Job, of course, he will not take this, right? He's like, I haven't done anything wrong. I have not sinned. 
and uh, this just escalates, right? And, and as the, the dialogues go, it just Job escalates his emotion and his, his pushback and attack on his friends, and his friends escalate in their criticism and attack on Job, which towards the end, you have Eliphaz, who is quite gentle in the beginning, uh, accuses Job of tremendous acts of evil, right? There's just no way he can understand Job's angry response to him and all the bad things that have happened to Job if Job hadn't actually done something quite bad. And Eliphaz, this is chapter 22, he says, is not your evil abundant? <laughs> there is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your, from your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty and arms of the followers were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and a sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now Job is, I mean, he is a wicked, evil man at this point. This is, none of this is true. It's just completely false. Job is not this guy. He's not done these things. But Eliphaz, he cannot comprehend Job's suffering and Job's response with the framework and his system. And that's, again, what suffering does. It always breaks simplistic, naive, shallow understandings of God and theology. This brings us to Job's second mistake. Not Job's, but the friend's. So the, the friend's first mistake was to not, to, just to engage Job's suffering uh, intellectually rather than emotionally. And the second mistake is this, is that they force an interpretation on Job's suffering that is narrow and theologically flawed. They try to fit it into this system. Job's friends, again, they have no category to make sense of his suffering. If a person suffers in some way, whether they realize it or not, they have sinned. But, as even God makes clear at the end of the book, Job has done nothing wrong. He has not sinned. In fact, it is, Job suffers because he's righteous. God calls attention to his righteousness. Now, the friend's theological system cannot account for this kind of suffering, but neither can Job's. Neither can Job's. Now, Job is in a better place than his friends, but neither Job's friends cannot imagine a world in which an innocent man suffers. And Job can't imagine a world in which God remains just and an innocent man suffers. <laughs> but the reality is, is that both are wrong. Job suffers as an innocent man and God remains just. Both things are true at the same time. Job is closer, again, than his friends. But the problem is that both of them have narrow and simplistic views of God and how God rules creation. They have too small of a God. They have too small of a God. They imagine that God is like a moral agent, like a human being, and that God just more powerful, right? And just with more knowledge of the data out there. And so God would run the universe like they would, but just he would be better at it. But God is not a moral agent like we are moral agents. God is not a human being. And so they think everything is about justice, that this is a dispute about the justice of God. And what, what, you know, it's God's policies that are on trial. Are they just or not? And so you have Job on one side arguing that God's policies are clearly unjust because an innocent man is suffering. And then you have the friends on the other side, the defense, who is saying, no, God's policies are just. And, the reason, and you're just <laughs> guilty of sin, right? But neither is right. Both of them are wrong. 
They have missed the main issue, the main issue that this suffering is not about the justice of God, it's about the wisdom of God. It's not about the justice of God, it's about the wisdom of God. Neither side is right because they have a narrow understanding of God. And God rebukes both. Both parties for presumption and a lack of understanding. In chapter 38, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you and make, make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What neither party has considered is the, is the wisdom of God, which transcends human wisdom. What you can comprehend is that God might have reasons to permit innocent suffering which still, which does not make God guilty of injustice. I mean, it's very hard for us to hold these thoughts together, that the innocent can suffer and God can remain just. All theodicies in the history of civilization, defenses of God, seek to resolve this dilemma. How does God remain just when the innocent suffer? And the problem with all of these, most of the time, is that they presume to know too much. They presume to know too much about the justice and the wisdom of God. And they presume that God is like a moral agent like we are. But God is not like us. And this brings us to what is the right theological response as wise comforters in the midst of suffering. You can't avoid the why questions. You can't avoid the reason questions. It's natural. But... The right response to suffering as wise comforters is humility. It's humility. That we ought to model humility. Humility is the appropriate response to suffering in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. We should not arrogantly presume to understand <laughs> what God is doing in our own lives and others. We should not seek to explain to other people the meaning of their suffering or why it happened. And God rebukes both Job and the friends of arrogance. You spoke with confidence of things you do not understand. <laughs> that is in a, the essence of one of, of God's response. And God says this not to shut them up. And to be humble in the face of suffering is not to ask questions. It's, it's, it's not to seek answers and to wrestle with the reality of it, but it's not to arrogantly presume that we understand. Because the fact is we are creatures. We cannot see everything. Just a little bit. We just, just a little fraction, you know, that can we see of all the things from God's perspective. We just can't. Okay. So some of you might be wondering, well, what might a person say um, to another who is suffering? Should we even speak? Should we even share words of comfort? Or is it best just to be silent? And I think the answer has to be an emphatic yes to words are important. It's actually important to speak and to dialogue and to, to, to share words as a comforter. Um, if I were a professor of pastoral care um, teaching young seminarians, how to uh, shepherd and comfort people in suffering, one of the assignments I might give them is read chapter 3 of Job. Now, I want you to imagine how might you have responded 
to Job's poem of despair in such a way that Job would have understood that he was heard and that he was not alone and that maybe even there were some words of hope and comfort. See, Eliphaz didn't have to respond the way he did. (laughs) There's a lot of ways that he could have responded that would have been words of comfort and not just silence. But it's very hard to offer words of comfort to the bereaved. I think we, we, we are afraid of that. That's why it requires wisdom. The wise person knows how to respond appropriately to the situation. They have a sense of discerning what's going on. I mean, Job goes through a whole range of emotions, from despair to anger to self-pity. And depending on where we're at when we suffer and we go through these emotions, we need different kinds of responses. And again, a wise comforter just is discerning, is paying attention to what's going on. Being a wise comforter is not just sitting with a person in suffering, but sitting with them in suffering in the presence of God. And I think this is very important. Is that we're not just with another person in their suffering. We're with them and we're inviting the presence of God. And we're helping them know that they are in the presence of God. And our presence with them helps enact God's presence. And here I would say that's why words of comfort are really crucial. It is good for us to err on the side of saying less than more. But people long for words of comfort when they're suffering. They, they need them. Um, one of the, just one of the things that I, my, group of, my group of friends from this past week shared that I want to share with you that I thought was quite insightful um, was an observation that when people are suffering, um, what they need to hear most are very basic truths about who God is, because suffering attacks the foundations, right? The, the very basic spiritual truths, the ABCs of faith, which is God is good. I'm his beloved son or daughter, that God is, he's in control, and actually that he's wise, and he, he's, he, you know, <laughs> he holds my life in his hand. These are all things that when you suffer deeply, you, you want to question, and, and so the kinds of Things that we need to hear from people are not really complex theodicies with detailed argumentation and, and like special spiritual truths about suffering. What you need is very basic things, like in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Like that's what you need to hear. And it, it's, it's not profound. What well, is profound, but it's not like, Oh, wow, I've never thought about that before. But when you hear it in suffering, and you're like, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting. And every single morning you get up and face your pain, there is new mercy for that day. And God is faithful. That's what you need to hear. Wise comforters point us to God and help us bring our suffering before the Lord. But most importantly, they point us to the wisdom of the cross. Each week I've said, and I'll probably try to say it every single week, the Christian response to evil and suffering is a cross. That's the Christian response to evil and suffering. It is not an argument. It is not a theodicy. What is a theodicy? But it's not one that, according to human wisdom and reason, um, it's the wisdom of the cross. And Paul talks about this wisdom in 1 Corinthians. He says, where is the wisdom of the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish 
the wisdom of the foolishness, the wisdom of the world, or I'm sorry, has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, see, when we grow in wisdom as comforters, we grow through the wisdom of the cross. When we grow in wisdom as those who suffer, we grow through the wisdom of the cross. And what is the wisdom of the cross? That Jesus, that in Jesus, God in the flesh, enters into the heart of darkness. <laughs> he, he enters directly into the heart of darkness of the world's suffering. That on the cross, the only truly innocent man died a violent and unjust death. That in Jesus, God experiences what it felt like to have friends that failed him in his greatest moment of need. They slept as he wept. They denied him instead of defending him. They abandoned him instead of accompanying him. The wisdom of the cross is that in Jesus, God experiences what it meant and what it felt like to be stripped naked, left completely alone, humiliated, and left for dead. But instead of defeat and being overcome by evil, God uses the very suffering itself as a means for victory. The cross isn't simply an obstacle that Jesus has to get through in order to accomplish the mission of God. Actually, the cross becomes the means by which he accomplishes his mission. And I think this is so important. Jesus overcomes suffering through suffering. He over, <clears throat> overcomes death through being put to death. This is the wisdom of the cross, and it is foolishness to the world because it doesn't make any logical sense, right? But the comfort it is to us is this, is that in your darkest moment, in your depths, in your despair, that is when God is most powerful. That is when God can do the miraculous. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For the power of the cross and the power of God, the power is the wisdom, the cross is the wisdom of God. Amen. Father, we... Uh, We, we are amazed at the wisdom of the cross, and it makes no sense to us how you can take suffering and injustice and death, and you can turn it around, and you can bring from that life and salvation and glory. And all of us in different ways in our lives need you to do that in our suffering, to take the loss and the pain and the suffering and the despair, and to convert it, to transform it, to resurrect it into life and to glory. Uh, Lord, give us humility as we suffer. I'm sure that many felt here today overwhelmed um, in the sense of being um, wise counselors. Lord, none of us are fit. None of us are worthy to do it well, but you are the wise counselor, and you are the one who works through us to comfort others. And so, Strengthen us for that task and, and strengthen us in our, in our relationship to you.
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.